Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Looking at our world from a theological perspective, this is the Theology Central Podcast. Making Theology Central. Good afternoon, everyone. It is Thursday, April the 20th, 2023. It is currently 3.34 p.m. Central Time, and I'm coming to you live from the Theology Central Studio located right here in Abilene, Texas, where everything went wrong last night. I mean, everything went wrong. I was supposed to be at 7 p.m. Central Time last night, standing behind the pulpit at Victory Baptist Church, and we were going to be working on the Bible study exercise for this week. That would have taken us to Deuteronomy chapter 8, Matthew chapter 4. Don't know how far we would have gotten. I don't know exactly which direction we would have went, but it would have been hopefully a fun, interesting, and an important step in our study on the subject of temptation, which we've been now working on for, what, a couple of weeks. It's a seven-week study. And so we would have been I'd have been adding and contributing to the study. So I was excited and everything went wrong and that did not happen. And then I was going to do some live broadcasting last night and possibly do some work again on Deuteronomy chapter 8 or Matthew 4 for the Bible study exercise. And well, then I saw a news article about Andy Stanley and saw the cruelty and ungodliness and horrible actions of professing Christians underneath that article. We won't, we won't talk about You know, here's Andy Stanley grieving for his father, Charles Stanley, who died. And well, people had to say horrific and horrible things. So, so we won't, we won't get into that, but that really kind of changed the direction, at least temporarily, because I had to kind of get over my own emotional reaction to what I was seeing. And then I was going to come back live on the air and say, let's talk Deuteronomy 8. Let's talk Matthew chapter 4. And then the next thing you know, well, we're under a thunderstorm warning. Then the next thing you know, we're under a tornado warning. And then the next thing you know, we have a hellstorm happening. And it sounds like someone is pounding, like just boom, 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 boom on the top of the, the roof of my house because of the hellstones falling. And so we had, and then we had a torrential downpour. It was crazy. It was just like everything that was happening. And then we had power issues, internet issues. And it was like, okay, well, that concludes my broadcasting day here from the Theology Central Studio in West Texas. But today, the sun is out. It's much cooler than it was yesterday, but but the sun is out. The storms are gone. And now here I am sitting back in the studio and we've, like, it's Thursday. Before we know it, this week is going to be over. So we've got to talk the Bible study exercise. We've got to talk temptation. All right. We have to talk about it. Are you ready? Now, I was 
I've been listening and reading Deuteronomy chapter eight over and over and over. I have some things I want to say about it. Full transparency. I haven't done a lot of work on Matthew chapter four. Some of you have emailed me and, and, and try to see a connection between Deuteronomy 8 and Matthew 4. I think some have emailed me in regards to the uh, curriculum. So, And some of you have uh, emailed me in regards to the PDF file on, tempta- on Temptation, uh, the free Grace Broadcaster, uh, articles dating from the 1600 to the 1800s. Uh, many of you have found that to be very beneficial and very helpful. And I'm, v- I'm, very, I'm glad, even if you don't get anything from me, if I can put something in your hands that will be beneficial, that's great. I've had some other ideas of things I've wanted to accomplish this week, but before you know it, it's Thursday and here we are. So as I kept listening to Deuteronomy chapter eight, I know I haven't done much work on Matthew four. You remember that last week we were in James, right? We were in James chapter one. And I feel that we did, I, I feel that we did an adequate amount of work on James chapter one. The only thing I think we failed at is I did want us and I wanted to I wanted to provide you five just chose chosen at random sermons on James one from the sermons 2.0 app. All right. I was going to find five for you. Just pick them. But I wanted you to go listen to five sermons, random sermons from the Sermons 2.0 app on James 1, just to see how they handled those two progressions that we saw in James chapter one. How they handled some of that? Uh, did they count it all joy when you fall into diverse tempta- or temptations, or, or or did they translate it trials? Did they argue for a separation between trials and temptations, or did they approach it the way we did? I, I wanted you to hear those different perspectives. So I would still challenge you: grab the Sermons 2.0 app, type it, do a search James one, and just start. Just choose at random five sermons from that app and just listen to them. Uh, and then just tell, and if you find one that you think is interesting or, or offers a unique perspective, you can let me know and we can do a sermon review. But I wanted to do that, but I never really got around to that again, because it's been, you know, as always, every week, there's always new challenges and new things that happen. But I, but I, so we've looked at James one and there was a lot there. There was a lot there that, that, and I'm going to mention it here. And then I've been in Deuteronomy chapter eight. I haven't gotten much into Matthew chapter four, but for some reason today, I had Deuteronomy chapter eight playing on the Bible app, on the version Bible app. I just had it playing. And I don't know why, I don't know exactly what was said, but all of a sudden this thought came to my mind. Boom. And I'm like, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. If we're going to talk about temptation, we got to talk about all, I'm going to refer to this as all involved parties. We got to look at everyone, everything that is involved in temptation. If we're going to have a full and complete picture of the subject, right? Now, I know this week we're really supposed to be looking at a specific temptation and how we basically trust ourselves over God. And, and I, and I haven't done much work on that. I'm just going to be honest with you. I haven't. I kind of ignored the curriculum, but I found myself today going, 
Who are all the involved parties when it comes to temptation? Who who is involved? Who who is involved in this? Now we could probably expand this a little bit, but I want you to think about it. So what I did is I I, I turned off Deuteronomy chapter eight. I ran up here to the studio and because my journal was laying here on the desk, I grabbed a pencil because of course I'm spiritual. I grabbed a pencil. I wrote the word temptation in my journal, and then I wrote four parties. Now you may want to you may you may want to you may want to do this differently. Remember the Bible study exercise. You know we know how this works. I I try to just I kind of just try to lead you into it. I'm trying to guide you. I'm not trying to do it for you, right? So the you know the, the Bible study exercise really is never complete unless you're participating, right? Until I hear back from you, the circle remains not closed, right? On the Apple Fitness app, you want to close your circles, right? You want to close your circles. Well, we can't close our circle on the Bible study exercises unless I hear back from you. So you may want to uh, you may think about this in a different way, but I wanted to think about. Who's involved? Who are who are the parties involved when it comes to temptation? Well, the first one is obvious, right? It's us. It's you. It's me. All, all, every individual Christian, we are involved in the whole temptation process in some way, shape, or form, right? You could say we're the ones being tempted. We're the ones doing the tempting. We, we're the ones fighting the temptation, but we're clearly a, a part of it, right? We, we do things. We, re, we, we resist. We don't resist. We check, we pursue it. Well, we're involved in the process. We can't keep, we can't get us out of it any way, shape, or form. Sometimes I think we almost view ourselves in a passive way. And you can tell me if you disagree, like, like I'm just sitting there and temptation is what happens to me, right? But we're obviously very much involved in the whole process, right? We, we recognize the temptation. We have to recognize, well, am I already committing the sin in my mind? Wait, okay, but that doesn't mean I have to commit it physically. Like, like there's all these, there's all these aspects to it, but listen, 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 listen. This is very, very important. We cannot just leave us out of it. We have to recognize we're involved in it in some way, shape, or form, all right? Second thing that's involved. Now, some of you are going to be like, no, you should group these two together. I understand they are connected, but I'm going to separate them. First, I have myself right here. I'm I'm involved in the temptation process, right? I'm being tempted. I'm tempting. I'm struggling. I'm I, I all. I'm just involved in the entire process. The second thing that's clearly involved in the process that I think people constantly forget is our sinful nature. Now I know that's a part of me, but I'm separating it. And here's the reason I'm separating it because sometimes I'm trying to battle my sinful nature. Right? The sinful nature is like, do it. Do it. And I'm like, no, die to self, deny self. No, do it. No, don't do it. Don't. And we almost have this battle. I, I you know, the, we have this battle inside. I, I don't think there's, I don't think there's a way to get around it. I mean, I, I I'm going to separate the two. It's me and my sinful nature, very much involved in the temptation process. And I believe the sinful nature once again gets overlooked. I think sometimes we view ourselves as passive in the process and we almost ignore the sinful nature because typically when we deal with temptation, we always want to blame it on everything outside of us. It's that person. It's that thing. It's 
Hollywood, it's music, it's video games, it's it's whatever the case may be. It's uh, we always want to blame temptation on the external things. But as we've discussed at length so far in this series, is that the external things has they have no power if there's not an internal sinful nature that desires it and wants it and is attracted by it. There, you can bring all kinds of temptations to me. They're meaningless unless there's something in me that wants it, that desires, that lusts for it, right? Well, that's my sinful nature. So my sinful nature is clearly, hey, I mean, you know, the, the, put it this way. The sinful nature always accepts the invitation to the party, right? It, it's a very much involved party in the whole process of temptation. I'm there. And there's my nature. And my nature says sin. My nature says focus on what you want. My nature says exalt yourself. Think about yourself. Please yourself. Put, you know, uh, you know, it's all about you, 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 you. I, 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 I. It's right there. It wants it. It desires it. It pursues it. It hungers for it. It lusts for it. All the things the sinful nature is involved in. It's inside of us. We can't leave that out of the, of the list of the, of the people involved, the parties involved. So we have us. We have us. We have the sinful nature. And then we have external. And, and I don't, I, I don't know, I, I don't know how we want to reference this. External things, the uh, e- externals. <laughs> do we do the externals? Do we want to use that term? Which term do you want to use for external things? I don't want to say things because it involves more than just that. That seems to be speaking of inanimate things. The externals involve everything. So when we see the external, this is what is outside of us. That's involved in our temptation. All right. We know we have the world system, right? The world system obviously is not built to say, serve God. Don't commit sin. Seek holiness. The world system is about, you know, appealing to the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. The entire, So we have the world. I don't think we can ignore that. We have the world out there and everything in it. That is yelling and screaming for us not to put our attention on God, put our attention on something else, get, get, you know, seek pleasure here, seek to, to fulfillment here. We can't, we can't ignore the world. It's there, right? Next, we also, we can put people. There are other people who will seek to tempt and to, to guide us away. I mean, I mean, there's no way to get around that. And a lot of times we're those people. Okay. We're right here. We're one of them. But so we have, we have the world. We have people. We have, I don't think we can ignore this. We have Satan. Now, how much Satan is directly involved in a temptation? Well, that's, uh, you know, that's, that's questionable because he's not omnipresent. He can't be everywhere at once. He does have demonic forces at work, but how much just saying Satan is, he's involved somehow in temptation. I, I can't say in every specific individual temptation, but he clearly is utilizing the world system to tempt. We could say it that way. He may not be directly involved, but he's, he's indirectly involved in some way, shape or form. We can't just ignore there is an evil spiritual entity that is alive and well and roaming about planet earth seeking whom he may devour. We can't just ignore him, right? So Satan is there, right? So we have, we have external, we have the world system, we have people, we have Satan. Oh, we have, we're going to call them, uh, let's call them trials. We're going to go ahead and call them trials because this becomes very important. We're going to put trials slash circumstances, Trials slash circumstances. 
And we've talked about this again in, in depth. That every trial is a temptation because every trial either begins to challenge you or, or kind of get you to think and desire to, to do that which God is telling you not to do, to seek maybe to, uh, a solution that's not godly, to make you start doubting or getting angry or, or not having faith or becoming bitter or, or unforgiving. Trials and circumstances, trials and circumstances, no matter how big or how small they may be, it can be the smallest little difficulty. And you can get frustrated, you can get irritated. And the next thing you know, you're snapping at someone. Next thing you know, you're not showing love. Next thing you know, and then it just builds and builds and builds and builds and builds and builds, right? You got trials and circumstances that's going to tempt you and how you are going to respond, right? So we have the external things. We got the world, we got people, we got trials and circumstances, and we have Satan. We have Satan in there as well. We have the externals, right? You can't deny it. Now, we have one more party. God. Oh, boy. Now, we have to have a dramatic pause there. I'm not doing that for effect. I'm doing that because I honestly, when I, when as soon as I mention it, I don't know exactly how I want to go with this because it leads to lots of controversy. Now, if you did your due diligence last week with the Bible study exercise, you're supposed to have been living and breathing James chapter one. I really thought, to be honest, I thought I was going to get somewhere between 50 and 100 emails saying, I got, I got zero. I don't think anyone said anything about it. But James one, does everybody remember? You, you want to turn there? Go to James one. Do you? Let's go to James one. You remember it? I remember it. I mentioned it in, in, in some of my preaching. I said I wasn't going to deal with it at church. I was waiting for other people to say, what do we do with this? But here we go. James chapter one, let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God for God cannot be tempted with evil. Neither tempteth he any man. Now, someone said, well, that removes God completely from the, he's not involved in any way, shape or form. God is, is not involved. So he's not, he's not one of the interested parties. He's not involved. He's not and one of the involved parties at all to this subject of temptation. But I disagree. And here's where my struggle is with this. All right. You got, you got to stay with me here. Got to stay with me. All right. Here we go. One, God is ever, when, when, when you take everything back and you just try to work backwards and work backwards, you're going to ultimately get to in the beginning God. So God's there at the beginning. There's no way to get around this. He creates knowing, he knowing he creates Satan, knowing that he's going to rebel, knowing he's going to be become the source of the first temptation on earth. You, and when Satan falls, he doesn't destroy him. He doesn't throw him to the abyss and place him in chains. He lets him come right onto earth into the garden to tempt Eve. He could have stopped that. He does not stop. Now, God may not be the one tempting, but you can't say God's not the one allowing it to happen. And if God created knowing it was going to happen, did nothing to stop it from happening, then it would be very hard pressed to say God didn't want it to happen. But then when Eve sins... He could, he could have immediately, she, she could have dropped dead instantaneously, keeping Adam from partaking of it, could have kept Adam from partaking of it, but did not. She takes the, the, the fruit to him. 
Now, once they both sin, he could have stopped everything right there. He could have had them both die instantaneously, and then that would sin would not have spread any further, and that would have been the end of it. That would have been the end of it. He could have just... I could have just ended everything, but he didn't. He allowed people to be born. And then knowing those people are going to be born with a sinful nature, meaning sin is going to be the natural operating system. That's going to be the the common way we're going to, we're going to sin. That's what we're going to do because that's who we are. We are sinners. We don't become sinners by sinning. We sin because we are sinners. And so now sin is going to become the dominant experience in human life. So, so even if God is not the one doing the tempting, the very source of temptation is inside of us. And God knew that before he ever created the world. And then once we are saved, he could eradicate, he could remove the sinful nature completely. He could pull it completely out of us, knowing that that's the source. Nope. He leaves it there. So that already makes it confusing. Well, wait a minute. It's almost as if God has created a system knowing sin is going to be the dominant experience. And then even for those who are believers, he doesn't get rid of the very thing that's going to cause them to sin. It's almost as if God, sin is somehow a part of his plan, not excusing anybody's sin, but it's very hard not to at least acknowledge that to some level. But wait, it gets even more complicated. It gets even more complicated because as we look, go back to James my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. Now, we looked at that Greek word and realized that it involves an, an uh, enticement to evil, it involves trial, and it involves a test. Knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. Now, here we go. Now we have the trials. The, we have the tempt, and when I say, t- t- the, I'm going to call it temptation, that the temptation that, that which, what part of it is a trial? It, it, it works on your faith, meaning that now here's the question. Is God in control and involved in the trials and circumstances that you face in your life? Or is he not involved? Now, if God's involved in trial by its very nature is a temptation, the Greek word clearly holds that idea because every trial is a temptation. Every trial is a temptation because it's there. And guess what it's going to reveal? And it's, it's a test. It's going to entice you to do that, which to think, speak, act, feel, desire that, which is contrary to God's word. Every trial is a temptation. Now, it, does God control the trials that come into your life or is he completely not involved in any way, shape or form? Now you could argue, well, he brings the trial but he's not trying to entice you to evil. He's just allowing a trial to come into your life. But if he allows the trial to come into your life, knowing that it's going to entice you to evil, is he not then involved in the temptation process? Or do you have to remove God completely from the trials as well? God's not even involved in trials. How is God involved in it? How involved is God in the temptation process? Because even if he's not tempting directly, He's not removing that which does tempt. Even if he's not trying to entice evil with a trial, he knows a trial will can, will can in many cases entice people to think, speak, desire, feel, and act in a way which is contrary to God's word. Uh, someone is saying here, 
Right. Oh, I, 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 I understand. God does not direct. Someone just said in uh, the chat, God does not directly tempt. I completely agree. The London Baptist Confession of Faith, they call it secondary uh, causes. I think is the, uh, I mean, pull up the exact paragraph from the London Baptist Confession of Faith. I think it's a, how, how perfect it actually works. One can debate, but let, let's go to it. Let's go to it here. All right. Let me pull up the London Baptist so I can read it directly. I can read the exact language so I don't misrepresent it. All right. Uh, let's see here. All right. Uh, let's see here. If I can find the, they call it secondary causes, I believe is the direct term they use here. All right there. Uh, yeah, talking about the nature. Let me find out which paragraph it is. Okay. Oh, God's holy decrees. Okay, here we go. Um, okay, paragraph one. God hath decreed in himself from all eternity by the most wise and holy counsel of his own free will, freely and unchangeably, all things whatsoever comes to pass. Right now, immediately that puts him as clearly involved in the trials. There's, there's no question about it. And this, and this is a lot of attempts by people to draw the distinction between a trial and a temptation. But just remember the Greek word is trans, that's translated trials or is the same word that's translated temptation because the Greek word has three concepts to it. The enticement to evil, the trial and the testing. All right. So you can say God brings the trial, but he's not trying to entice to evil. But knowing that the trial will entice to evil, why did he then bring the trial? Like these are, these are just basic philosophical questions that someone is going to ask. The London Baptist says, Hey, God, God is going to work all things according to his free will. So whatever comes to pass, God has decreed it. Now, but yet, here we go. Yet, so as thereby is God neither the author of sin, nor hath fellowship with any therein, nor is violence offered to the will of the creature, nor yet is the liberty or contingency of second causes taken away, but rather established. So what they say is, see, God, see, what here, here basically, this is the way they try to explain it. All right. Here's God. And I, and I, and I, I, you can't see what I'm doing, but I'm holding my journal. Here's God. And the journal represents, say, a trial. God's like, boom, I'm going to decree this trial to come into this person's life. Right now, I'm just to, in a sense, God is the secondary cause. I'm just going to give the trial. Now, how they respond to the trial, the trial will either serve as simply a test or to strengthen, to develop, or it will be temptation. But I'm not actually doing the tempting. I'm just giving the trial. The trial is the secondary cause. What happens with that trial, that's that's not on me. That's on them. But yet God knows what's going to happen with them. So, yeah, I mean, you can, you can, you can, we can try to remove God from it as much as possible. But God, I mean, God knew from the beginning how everything was going to come to pass. And I, and, and the most, the most important thing to realize is he does not remove, eliminate in any way, shape or form the sinful nature, which is the, 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 the cause of all of our issues is it's inside of us. So we have to struggle with how these four parties work. Now you could bring in a fifth party. 
You could bring in a fifth party. And we'll talk more about this in just a second, all right? So we'll, we'll, um, we may talk more about God's involvement or how he's inv- involved, but we have to at least acknowledge there's a struggle here. I mean, we can, we can, I think Christians love to sometimes think, well, it's a simple answer. It's not a simple answer when you really, really think about it because of all of these issues. And there's been plenty of people for 2000 years who've obviously struggled with these issues and point, pointed them out. And they're like, and Christians are like, it's simple. And they're like, it's not so simple because everything starts with God knowing exactly everything that was going to take place. So in some way, shape or form, it would be impossible to remove God completely from his involvement in it. He controls the trial. He brings in the trial. Trial service temptations. No way to get around it. He knows what we're going to be tempted. Any of the externals, like Satan. He could have gotten rid of Satan. Well, he never even had to create him in the first place, but he could have eliminated Satan three seconds after Satan's rebellion, but he didn't. Now, if Satan is, and he's allowing him to roam about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. So, and then all the external things that seek to tempt us, again, would have no power if God just simply eliminated our sinful nature. So, so you have to say God is somehow utilizing and working through sin to some level for his purpose and his glory and his honor. I mean, there's just no way to get, there's no, just, just no way to get God completely out of it. But you could say there is another party involved, right? What do you think it would be? And remember, Bible study exercise. When I do the Bible study exercises, okay, for anyone listening who may be new, I don't, I don't try to do all the teaching. The Bible study exercises, I give you homework, I give you assignments, we have curriculum, my job is just to try to get you involved in the process, all right? So sometimes I just throw the concepts out there to get you to struggle with them, all right? So we've got four parties so far. We have us. Everyone knows we're involved in the in this situation. We have the sinful nature. We know that's the that's the issue everywhere. We know we have externals, right? And we looked at all of the externals. God, we can't remove him from it. And I don't know if this one, I, I don't know if everyone will agree with this, but I want us to at least consider it. It's, it's because, you know, we're, we're obviously looking at temptation in light of obviously from a Christian perspective as Christians. All right. So here we go. Here we go. I'm going to throw this one down. I'm going to write it down. Okay. It, the first, the first word has one, two, three, four letters. The next one has two letters and the next one has three letters. What do you think I just wrote down? I, I think this is involved in the process. The word of God. I've hid thy word in my heart so I might not sin against thee. In the whole temptation process, Scripture is, inv- is an is a involved party in this sense. Scripture is telling us what is sinful, what isn't sinful, telling us all of these. It, it's giving us the moral standard, the law. And remember what the law does. The law reveals to us our sin, uh, that we are sinners in thought, word, desire, feeling, and action, right? That we can commit a sin even if we don't actually do something physically. We can commit it in our mind. So meaning we're uh, constantly in sin in some way, shape, or form. I think it's involved in the process. It identifies it. It identifies what sin is. It, it, it's constantly revealing to us. So I think it's involved in the process. I'm not, and again, I'm not saying it's the one tempting. Just like when I say God is involved in the process, 
I understand if we say God is directly tempting, that would go against James 1, which we've already cited. So we understand that. But you can't just say he's removed from the process since he's the creator decreeing what comes to pass, hasn't done anything to remove the very source of said temptation, which is our sinful nature, and allowed sin into the world and did not get rid of it. And I mean, we could go on and on and on. He's obviously involved in the process in some way, shape or form. And the word of God, I'm not saying it's doing the tempting, but it's involved in the process. It reveals to us what sin is. It condemns that. So I'm going to put, we have five parties involved. We have five parties involved. And what I want you to do now, I know this week we're running out of time quickly. I want you to do some really serious thinking about how these parties are involved. Now, we can be very honest with this. Let's just consider this, right? I want to get to a little bit of Deuteronomy 8, um, but... Let's, let's at least be honest with this part of this, right? As we, as we work on this, again, we got like another five weeks to go on this subject. So we got plenty of time to work through all of these issues. But I do want us to understand this. This just, this is just some, this is a basic truth in any kind of theological study, no matter, I don't care uh, where you went to seminary, Bible, all the Bible colleges, all the seminaries have gone to, you just, at some point you have to just realize this. There are certain aspects of God's eternal decrees. There are certain aspects of what God has done eternally that we just cannot truly understand. God's involvement with temptation, God's involvement in the entire process, whether trials, temptations, why he leaves the sinful nature, why he created Satan, there is much of that that we just don't know. And that's one of the reasons I love the book of Job. We're not, Job never gets the answers. God sets up the entire thing. He sets everything up. And then Job suffers and people die. I mean, from a, from a human perspective, it's a horrific story. People say, well, you look, look what, look what Job got in the end. He didn't get back his dead family. He didn't get them back. They were dead. So, um, it, there, there's a, there's a horrible aspect to it. There's a horrible aspect to it, but. Job does not get the answers. Remember when Job comes to God and is like, hey, what about this and what about this? God turns around and says, no, 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 you. What about this and what about this? At some point, you just have to understand there's some, there's an aspect of God's involvement that we're just not going to understand. Uh, some, uh, someone just said, uh, God, uh, God, uh, just the initiating party for Satan to carry out his sovereign plan. Now, I, well, I do agree. I mean, God, God obviously uses Satan for his, his sovereign plan. I, I'm by no means dismissing that, but that still puts God involved, which you have to, you have to be at least honest and struggle with. Well, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. So I just want you to understand as we try to figure out God's involvement, there's going to be a, a part where we're just not going to be able to, we're like, I, hmm. I can, I can try to dress it up in nice theological terms and throw out a couple of cliches and some bumper stickers. But the reality is there's a lot there that I just do not know. And like Job, I may not understand it. 
right? And that's where faith comes in because there's, a, there's some things I just will not understand. I don't understand. Like if you're asking me about the plan, whole thing is crazy from a human perspective. From a human perspective, we just got to be, it's okay to be honest with the human struggles here, right? The human struggles are, wait a minute, wait a minute. God, what are you doing here? Well, I don't understand it. So what we can't figure out there, we have to acknowledge, but we then have to turn to what we can understand. We do understand our sinful nature. It's there. It's not going away. That's a reality. That's a reality. We have to understand the external things that bring temptation into our lives. We can't deny that. And we have to understand that we're very much intimately involved in the entire process. And so we can focus on what we do know and what we don't know. All we can do is we can't ignore it. We can't deny the philosophical questions and problems that come from it, right? I mean, philosophically, I mean, I've always said Christianity is very unsatisfying from a philosophical standpoint in so many different ways. You're just like, what? And that's why, you know, many who will look at things from a philosophical standpoint will be like, what in the world? But obviously, God has not desired to give us nice, simple philosophical answers. We just have to deal with some very difficult theological realities that sometimes are beyond our comprehension or they don't even make sense to us. They don't. It just doesn't make sense to us. But we have to acknowledge that. So we can focus on what we can. But I want you to just consider all of these parties and how they work together. We'll be talking more about it over the next four to five weeks as we continue to work on this, but I want you to consider it, all right? So we did a lot of work on James 1. We did a lot of work. We looked at the two progressions. We, we took all of it apart. We looked at the Greek word. We, we took all of that apart. Now, we're going to run out of time. But this week, Deuteronomy 8, Deuteronomy 8, and Matthew 4. Now, the curriculum wants us to look at a specific kind of temptation, and I'm ignoring that right now. I'm, I'm just like, whatever. Remember, the, uh, the curriculum here is only supplements what we do on the podcast, but everyone can look at the curriculum and see how they want to look at it. But here's what I want us to do, all right? Deuteronomy chapter 8. Let's just do a little bit of just kind of a basic kind of walkthrough of some of the passage. We're not going to go full-blown expositional at this point, but we'll w- work on it, all right? Here we go. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 1. All the commandments which I command thee, obviously, uh, these are God's commandments, which I command thee this day shall ye observe to do that ye may live and multiply and go in and possess the land which the Lord swear unto your fathers. Now, obviously, the old covenant, very there was very much an aspect of do and live, don't and die. Do this blessing, don't do this cursing, very much there. Obviously, in the New Testament, yes, the law is still there saying, do this and you will live. But Christ comes and says, I've done it for you and my perfect my uh, perfect active and passive obedience is imputed to you by faith. Therefore, I live because of what Christ did. He kept the commandments on my behalf and I am saved by an imputed righteousness, not a practical righteousness or an infused righteousness. That's why the whole Protestant Reformation happened in the first place, right? We believe in an imputed righteousness, all right? So there's a lot we could talk about this, all right? Verse two, and thou shall remember all the way which the Lord thy God led thee these 40 years in the wilderness to humble thee. All right. Now, 
this seems to indicate. Now, I, I find it interesting. A lot, a lot here we could think about and we could we can meditate on. He wants them to remember all the ways in which the Lord thy God had led thee these forty years in the wilderness. Now, they spent 40 years in the wilderness because of their unbelief, their rebellion, their lack of faith, their sin. Now, God led them for 40 years to humble them, to humble them. Now, as I was thinking about this, I'm like, okay, obviously, before God ever called Abraham, before he ever made the Abrahamic covenant, before there were ever the 12 tribes, he knew that Israel as a nation obviously would go into captivity to Egypt. That's even talked about in Genesis. Obviously he knew it was going to happen. He's omniscient. They go into captivity. He knows when they come out of captivity, he knows immediately well, exactly how things are going to play out. They're going to grumble. They're going to complain. They're going to get right there to the promised land. And they're going to be like, oh, no, we can't go in. We're going to go, you know, someone lead us back to Egypt. Let's go back to being slay. He knows exactly what's going to happen. He knows, right? He knows He knows when he leads them this way that they're going to start grumbling because there's no food or what. He knows every, I mean, he's the one doing the leading, right? God is the one doing the leading, so he knows exactly what's going to happen. Now, once again, God is not the one. I, we, I know, theologically, we cannot say God is the one directly tempting. I, 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 anyone listening who's concerned that I'm saying that, I, you're misunderstanding. I'm not saying that. Please, no one think that, all right? Clearly, I understand the London Baptist Confession of Faith says secondary causes. I understand that. I understand how we try to theologically try to work around it. But God is the one leading them right into all of this. Leading them into all of this. Now, I got to be very careful how I say this, because if I'm not careful here, people are going to immediately scream heresy. But I want us to think about, and, and I don't want this to come across as I'm making any excuse for sin, right? When we sin, we're, we're guilty before God. And we sin in thought, word, and deed. We're guilty all the time. That's why we, our salvation is based off an imputed righteousness. However, 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 this text shows God's in, involvement here. He, he, he's the one who delivered them, clearly a work of God, right? He's the one leading them, you know, pillar of fire, cloud. I mean, he's the one leading them. He's, he's giving direct revelation to Moses. He's leading, he's guiding. He brings them into these situations where he knows what they're going to do. They grumble, they complain, they sin, all the things that happen. Ultimately, they're going to rebel. And then they're going to wander around 40 years as people die, 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 die. Remember, we calculated how many people died per hour based on an estimated number of people that had to die off in those 40 years. And it's a staggering number and it's frightening to think how many people were dying continually for those 40 years. But then all of a sudden here in Deuteronomy 8, God is, is establishing his involvement here. And thou shall remember all the ways which the Lord thy God led thee these 40 years in the wilderness to humble thee. God is, now you can say, well, God's not the primary cause. He's just, you know, he's, he's not the primary cause. He used secondary causes, but he's involved. And he's, he said, he's doing this to humble you, to humble you. Now here, now here we look at the parties involved. 
right? Look at the parties involved. We have the us. We have, in this case, Israel. We have us. What else do we have? We have external circumstances. We had external circumstances happening to them. They had all these things happening around them. Oh, we got the, we got giants in the land. Wait a minute. What about food? Wait, what about water? You know, wait, we're tired of manna. All the different, they had their own, they had all of these external things that they were encountering. They're clearly involved, right? God is obviously involved. So you've got us. And then clearly we know they have a sinful nature, which manifests itself over and over and over and over and over again. But somehow in this wilderness situation, God is at work. He's not just throwing the, he's to humble them. Now you can say, well, see, it, it was meant for good. Yeah, but a lot of people died. A lot of people died for 40 years. So from a human perspective, it's once again, kind of troubling, but he did it to humble. Now, my, here's my question. Question, please hear. In what ways is God involved in your life and my life, in which we are tempted, we fall, we stumble, we sin. But God is involved in it in such a way to bring about humility in us. Now, I'm not saying we say, hey, yeah, I know you caught me in Vegas with a prostitute. You know, don't worry about it. God was using it to humble me. I'm not saying we, 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 we pull this out as excuse number 72 when we get caught. I'm just saying that you would think, though, God would not use it to just bring humility. He could just, he could fix the whole situation where, I don't know, <laughs> we didn't have a sinful nature. But I find it interesting. He does it to humble. Now, look what else he, go, he, he goes on to say. God is the one leading. To, and to prove thee, to know that, to know what was in thine heart, whether thou wouldest keep his commandments or no. Now, remember, we have to understand this is it's not God learning. It's not like God's like, okay, okay, here we go. All right. I got, I got a pet project today. Okay. We've got Israel. They've been wandering around. Oh, here's what we're going to do. We're going to do these things to them. We're going to let these things happen. And we're going to wait and see if they pass the test. He already knew they were going to fail the test. He already knew that over and over and over. I mean, Israel is a history of failure, 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 failure. Meaning that as human beings, God's law, all it ever does is reveal, it reveals our disobedience, it reveals our sinful nature, and it and it actually brings out that sinful nature. It almost entices the sinful nature. It activates it to, to rebel. Uh, God's law just constantly shows our sin. Israel is a constant example that no matter how many laws they had, no matter how much revelation they had, they were still going to sin, which is the same as true of us. We're still going to sin. That's why our salvation has to be based off an imputed righteousness, right? Because we continue to fall all the time. But I just think it's interesting. God is involved in this situation. But he's going to do it to humble and to prove. Now, he's going to be proving it to them. And I, this is what I, 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 we talked about in James 1, where it says, count it all joy. We should count it all joy, whether it's a trial or whether it's an enticement to evil, right? And those both work together because every trial is an enticement to evil in some way, shape, or form. Every trial, we should count it joy because at the moment of temptation, the moment of trial, the second we feel that the second we think 
The second we speak, the second we feel or desire that which is contrary to God's word, we should count it all joy because, hey, hey, it's being revealed. Wait a minute. I got a problem right here. Oh, wait a minute. I got a problem. Oh, wait. I got a problem here. We do count it all joy because it does prove something. It does, but it shows us. So it's to humble and it's to prove Every, you could say every trial and every temptation has a, you could say a, in a sense, a two positive things can come from it. It's to humble and it is to prove. Now you could go through James 1 to those progressions that we talked about, but it's to humble and to prove. And then look at verse three, and he humbled thee. Once again, humility is mentioned again. There's, there's a humbling process that goes through this. And suffered thee to hunger and fed thee with manna, which thou knewest not, neither did thy fathers know that he might make thee know that man doth not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of of the Lord doth man live. Now you could say here that God was involved. God's involvement. I'm going to write this down. We're going to put God's involvement was to humble. I think that's clearly there. Test. Oh, how do we want to do this? And I'm going to put teach. How do I want to put this? Teach. Teach us to rely on God. All right. I think, I think we can see this, right? So God, clearly God is involved. He's leading them 40 years. We, we know he's involved. There's no way to get around. God's not involved in this entire situation. There, there's never a situation in the Bible that's more show God is intimately involved. He's there in every page. He's, he's leading, guiding his, some, some will reference as the Shekinah glory and the tabernacle. He's right there. He's, he's revealing everything to Moses. I mean, he's, he's so involved. It's not even funny. So he leads them 40 years and there's the humility to humble them, to prove them. All right. So we've got God's involvement is to humble. And we're going to put to test. We'll put, we'll put the word test. And then look, he's going to teach them. He humbled thee and suffered thee to hunger and feed and, and fed thee with manna that thou knewest, which thou knewest not. Neither did thy fathers know that he might make thee like a, no, he might make you know something. He's teaching you something that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of the Lord doth man live. He was teaching them, rely on God. Now, I want you to think about this. God, you, God, God's involvement in sin or in temptation, right? And in our sin, however we see him involved, no matter how much you want to pull back, say secondary causes, no matter how much in, no matter how you want him not to be indirectly involved, no matter how far you want to move him back, God's involvement, I think the same lessons are still there. Every time I'm tempted, every time I fall, every time I'm, I sin, it should humble me. It should show me, Lord, I cannot do it. You did it. I have to trust in the finished work of your son. Every time I'm tempted and every time I 
uh, every time I sin, every time I'm humble, every time I, I sin, every time I fall, every time I'm tempted, I should be humble to go, Lord, you know, I, I'm not going to sit there and go, I thank thee, Lord, that I'm not like all of these people. I'm going to be like, Lord, I'm not worthy. 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 Lord, I'm not even worthy of anything because I know I'm a sinner. It should humble me. It, and it it should test. It should prove something. It should prove, man, that sinful nature is alive and well inside of me. I know in my desires. I know what I'm thinking. I know what I want. I know what I'm desiring. Ooh, it's not good. It's not good. And I should be count that all joy that it shows me that, right? It shows me that. It it demonstrates that. But it, it helps me know something. That man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Immediately, what does it show me? Immediately, it shows me this, that I have to rely on God. I can't rely on me. And when I say rely on God, it's not just saying rely on God so that I won't sin because you know, no matter how much you rely on God, nobody's going to be sinless. So you're still going to sin. What does it mean? I got to rely on God for everything because God's the one I got to have his righteousness. Every time I sin, every time I feel temptation, I got to know, man, my salvation cannot be based upon me. It's got to be pay- based off what Jesus did for me. Not, not, I'm not going to be able to live by bread alone, by what I can find, what I can produce, what I can do. I can't be my righteousness. I got to, it's got to be the righteousness that comes from God. That's what I have to rely on. It's his obedience, not my obedience. It's his righteousness, not my righteousness. It's to, it's to teach us to rely on God alone for our salvation. And then it shows how God provided for them. Thy raiment wax not old upon thee, neither did thy foot swell these 40 years. Thou, thou shalt also consider in thine heart that as a man chasteneth his son, so the Lord thy God chasteneth thee. Therefore, thou shalt keep the commandments of the Lord thy God to walk in his ways and to fear him. Now, we have to rely on God, but there's a chastening aspect to it. So, God's involvement to humble, test, teach us to rely on God and to chasten. There's a chastening aspect where God brings chastisement upon us. We can't ignore that. I mean, it's right there in the text. And what I love about this uh, for the Lord thy God bringeth thee into a good land, a land uh, of brooks, of water, of fountains, of depths that spring out of, vi- of valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley and vines, fig trees, pomegranates, a land of olive oil and honey, a land wherein thou shalt eat bread without uh, scarceness. Thou shalt not lack anything in it, a land whose stones are iron and out, and out of whose hills thou mayest dig brass. When thou hast eaten, art full, and thou shalt bless the Lord thy God for the good land which has given thee. God's ultimately going to provide them everything they need. And in Christ Jesus, he's provided everything we need in salvation. Because in Christ, what do we have? We have perfect righteousness imputed to us. We have passive and active obedience imputed to us. So in Christ, what am I? Perfect, holy, righteous, without sin. In my practical life, I encounter all of these horrible difficulties with temptation, my own sin, all of these issues, all of these parties are involved. I'm going to sin. I'm going to fall short in thought, word, desire, feelings, and actions. But God is there to forgive and to provide. And my salvation is based off that. But I learned something in it. I'm humbled by my failure. 
I it test reveals. Oh man, I got problems, man. I got serious the things that we as Christians we have to cover up. We can't be honest with, right? Oh, it's going to teach me to rely on God. And if you've been a Christian for any length of time, just consider how much you sin on a regular, consistent basis. You don't love the Lord that God with all your heart, mind, body, and soul. Nobody of us, none of us ever do. We don't love our neighbor as ourselves. Be holy as God is holy. I'm never going to be holy as God is holy in my practical life. Therefore, I'm, 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 woe is me. I'm undone. But in Christ, Christ loves the Father perfectly. Now that's imputed to me. He loves neighbor. That's imputed to me. And he was holy as God is holy because obviously he was the second person of the Trinity, the incarnate son of God, eternal son of God. Therefore, all of that is imputed to me. So in Christ, I fulfill all of those commands. In Christ, I have everything I need. In Christ, he provides everything. I have to rely on that provision. In practice, I seek to live out what is true positionally, however, imperfectly. Now, I want you to spend some time in Deuteronomy 8, and I want you to consider all the parties involved. Now, also, we have God's word showing up here in Deuteronomy 8 because God's, well, speaking to them and telling them what to do and how and why what's going on. God's word is involved in Deuteronomy 8. He's explaining what's going on. He's explained what's happening. He's explained what God is trying to do with them, for them, through them. So God's word is involved in, in, in Deuteronomy 8. In fact, all parties kind of show up in Deuteronomy chapter 8. Now, in Deuteronomy 8, he says, hey, obey, do it, do it, guys. And they fall short and they fall short. And Israel's going to, they sinned for those 40 years, even when they get to into the promised land. It's very, sin shows up. Next thing, they're compromising. They're, they don't drive out their enemies. They're turning to idolatry. They're, boom, sin, 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 sin. I mean, Israel just sins, sin, sin. But when you get to Matthew 4, where Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy 8, Jesus is tempted, yet he does not sin. And he becomes then the spiritual bread where when we partake of him, we'll never hunger or thirst again because we have everything we need. Now, I'm just going to leave it there. There's a lot there I did not pan out. There's a lot there I did not pull together. Some of you are already seeing some of the correlations between Deuteronomy 8 and Matthew 4. They, they were called to do and they don't. Jesus did. And, and by faith, his righteousness is imputed to me. All right, you can email me. Newsif at yahoo.com. Newsif at yahoo.com. That's newsif at yahoo.com. Newsif at yahoo.com. Now, we'll probably be working on this more this week. That's just getting us kind of trying to add to this discussion. Sunday, I'll probably work on this more, uh, more probably from the pulpit. And then, of course, on Sunday, uh, we will introduce next week's study on temptation. Remember, we got about another five weeks to go, and we'll see where we end up next week. But Deuteronomy 8, Matthew 4, that's where you need to be this week. Deuteronomy 8, Ma- or Matthew 4, you need to be in those two chapters. Don't forget James 1. We spent a lot of weeks last last week on that. And uh, I mean, this is part, part 8 now, part 8 of our study, and that's eight hours of, of work on this. So uh, dig into all of it and let me know your thoughts. Newsif at yahoo.com, newsif at yahoo.com. To the person commenting on uh, Spreaker, thank you so very much for listening. To the people listening on all the other platforms that we're on, thank you for listening. And uh, well, let's keep working on this very, 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 very important subject because the one thing I know 
is not only will you continue to face temptation your entire Christian life, you will continue to sin as well. So we need a biblical understanding of this subject and not sometimes the info commercial you know, idea that way Christianity sometimes sells this, which I think is sometimes very much disconnected with the reality that we actually experience. All right. Thanks for listening. Everyone have a great day. God bless. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.